What I am going to talk to you about tonight is a topic that is of extraordinary topical importance, but also of great subtlety philosophically and in every other way. The belief that government has both the responsibility and the power to promote equality of income has become an article of religious faith. It takes about as much daring these days to question the virtues of egalitarianism as it used to take to question the virtues of motherhood. I trust that just as it no longer takes that much courage these days to question the virtues of motherhood, the time may come when an even greater degree of understanding about the problems of equality will make it less dangerous to question the virtues of the religious belief in equality. Like most religious beliefs, and the reason why it is to be called a religious belief, this one is unexamined and preached rather more than it is practiced. In this talk tonight, I want to discuss first the various mean meanings that are attributed to the concept of equality and the ambiguities which each of them have. Second, the relation between the value of egalitarianism or equality on the one hand and such other values as efficiency, justice, and liberty. And third, some of the facts about the distribution of income and about the effects of government measures that have been taken in the name of promoting equality. It is appropriate in this place to start with perhaps the most famous of all declarations about equality. This was the, and this is in some ways, the root meaning of the concept of equality. You all recall that Thomas Jefferson, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. If you were to stop there and stop and think about those words, you would say, well, what utter nonsense. How can any man as intelligent, as knowledgeable, as worldly as Thomas Jefferson write such an obviously invalid sentence? Not only aren't all men created equal, all people aren't men. And what about the women? Thomas Jefferson, like so many of his fellows, was a slave owner. Was he asserting that the slaves were, treated, were created equal to the non-slaves? Some men are born tall, some are sh short, some are strong, some are weak, some are smart, some are stupid. But obviously, Thomas Jefferson did not mean that men are created equal in the literal sense that they are clones of one another. That isn't what he meant. And that becomes obvious if you don't stop the reading of the Declaration of Independence at that point, but go on to read the sentences that follow. And what follows that statement in the Declaration of Independence 
We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. It continues. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What Thomas Jefferson and the founding fathers were saying when they said all men are created equal is not at all an assertion about their genetic composition or their physical characteristics. It was rather an assertion that they were equal before the law, that they were equal in the eyes of God, that each person is precious in and of himself, that each person separately is to be taken seriously as a human being in and of himself and is not to be treated simply as a means for the purpose of serving somebody else's ends. Equality, even in that sense, of course, the Founding Fathers were preaching what they were not practicing as they were well aware, because that concept of equality was, of course, inconsistent with slavery. And the working out of the logic of the Declaration of Independence ultimately had to lead to the abolition of slavery because it did violate this fundamental concept of equality. Equality as human beings before the law and before the Creator. Now equality of rights in this sense gets meaning precisely because people are not equal in tastes, in values, in capacities. It's precisely because people are not equal that we have to stress that people have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Because people are unequal and different, each will view his happiness as lying in a different area. Each will have different values. He will hold different things high. And if each separately is to be regarded as an end in himself, it is essentially necessary that he be given the opportunity to pursue those differences and to satisfy his tastes and values and not somebody else. Equality in this sense, equality of rights, personal equality, is a precondition of permitting human freedom. That's the original, I believe, and the most important sense of equality. But there are two other senses which it has been given which need attention. The second, the most widely discussed sense of equality is the notion of equality of opportunity. All of us are accustomed to saying, well, of course, men aren't equal, but they should run a fair race. We want people to have equality of opportunity. Now, in any literal sense, that's just as impossible as is physical genetic equality. I have one, one child who is born with sight and another per child who is, born with blind, who is born blind. 
What can it mean to say that they shall have equality of opportunity? Their opportunities are unequal. I have children who are born in the United States of America, a great country, a wealthy country with many openings. I have children who are born, let us say, in India, or in China, or in Russia, or in any one of a dozen other places in the world. What can it possibly mean to say that their opportunities are equal? Within a single country, some children are lucky enough to have parents who are concerned about them, who, who give them a background of culture and understanding and schooling and education. Other children are born so unfortunate as not to have the same quality of parents. There is no way in any literal sense you can achieve equality of opportunity. And yet, the concept has a meaning and a significance. What we really mean by it, I believe, is not the literal sense that people shall have equal opportunities, because that's impossible. What we really mean is something else. It's the idea that was, is expressed best by the French phrase that became uh, common at the time of the French Revolution. I won't give it to you in French because my French pronunciation is so terrible I would mangle it. But the English of it is a career open to the talents. That every career shall be open to every individual who shall have the talent and the ability and the good fortune to have had the upbringing which would qualify him for it. The meaning of equality of opportunity in this sense is that there, sh there shall be no arbitrary obstacles placed to prevent people from achieving those careers, those positions, those opportunities for which they have the ability and the capacity and the taste to qualify. In that sense, Equality of opportunity, as we shall see, is also a necessary condition for freedom in the sense that there shall be no arbitrary obstacles preventing people from developing their capacities. But I come to the third sense, and the one which is the one most widely used today, and that's the notion of equality in the sense of equality of outcome. This is what is meant when people say, we want a society in which inequalities of income are less, in which differences in wealth, differences in goods and services available are less. Now, equality of income, equality of outcome, is clearly inconsistent and contradictory to equality of opportunity of the kind we've just been talking about. Let me illustrate that in a rather uh, silly and trivial way. A group of us get together to play a game of poker. Equality of outcome means that after the game is over you have to redistribute the money so everybody ends with the same amount. Well, that takes all the fun out of the game. And it also completely denies the idea that at the outset everybody shall have the opportunity to do the best he can. If everybody is to end up in the same place, 
to have the same outcome after the event. What does it mean to say that people shall have equality of opportunity to achieve as much as they can in terms of their capacities? So equality of out income, of outcome, is clearly inconsistent with any appropriate concept of equality of opportunity. But beyond that, it is an even more difficult concept to define precisely than is are the other concepts, equality of rights or equality of opportunity in the sense of no arbitrary obstacles. If we're going to talk about equality of income, what is the appropriate area? Should we talk about the world as a whole? Are people who say we cannot tolerate inequalities of income saying we shall see to it that the objective, that the aim ought to be to have every person around the world have the same income as every other person? Do you want to do it if not for the world as a whole? Is it to be equality within a country, within a state, within a city, within a family? How do you know when two people have equal incomes? What does that mean? Here is one man whose tastes and preferences are to lie under a tree and enjoy himself. And he will choose a job which will give him that opportunity even though it has a much lower reward than another man who is a workaholic and wants to work hard and besides he likes those things you can get with money. Under what circumstances do they have equal income? Are you going to say they have equal income if they have equal money? Indeed, do we not require under many, many circumstances that money income shall be different in order that the whole of people's returns be the same. I want to induce somebody to do a dirty, nasty job, and I offer somebody else a very pleasant job. Isn't it necessary in order that they shall be equally well off that the one man receive a higher income in dollars, higher money income than the other? Some activities carry more risk than others. Let's go back to my lottery game. I have a thousand beautiful girls who want to go into the movies. Where do I measure equality of income? One of them is going to become a star and make a million and the other are going to be, have very low incomes. But they all start off equal. How do I measure, when are they equal in income? And how do I compare their income with the other thousand equally beautiful girls who decided to become secretaries? How do, what unit do I want to take if I'm going to measure equality of income? Do I want to look at the person as a unit, the family? Here I have two families, both husband and wife. The one decided that they would prefer to have children and the other decided that they would prefer to have a nice automobile. What measures equality of income? Equality per person or per family? Now lest you think 
that this problem of the size of family is an irrelevant consideration. Let me point out to you that probably no change in the past 75 years has done more to reduce real poverty and real misery than the change in the size of the family over that period, and particularly the elimination of very large families. If you go back to the social surveys that were being made at the turn of the century, you will find that the real cases of poverty were the cases of families which had a very large number of families of relatively low income which had a very large number of children. If I had two families, both had the same, the parents and the father, let's say, in both cases had the same job earning the same number of dollars per week, the one family might be relatively well off because it was small, while the other family was poverty stricken because it was uh, undesirably large. And the changing technology which has enabled families to choose the size that they prefer and to plan their families has probably been about more important than any other single change in the past 75 years in reducing the incidence of real poverty and misery. But the problems are only beginning. Do I want to look at the equality of incomes on a day-by-day -day basis, on a week-by-week -week basis, on a month-by-month -month basis, on a year-by-year -year basis, on a life-by-life -life basis? We have baseball players who, whose uh, working season is very short. They only work during five or six months of the year. And then, as some of you may know, they, in many states, collect unemployment insurance in the rest of the year. Do I say that in the first six months of the year their income is higher than that of the people in general and in the last six months it's lower? Surely I want to look at it on a year basis. But here are all you youngsters in school. If I construct the usual kind of a distribution of income on a person-by-person -person basis, each one of you will enter in as one at a relatively low income along with your parents who will enter in at a relatively high income. But that's a silly comparison because you may, you may have a low income now, but you are destined to have a high income later on. If I'm going to make comparisons about equality of income, I surely have to make comparisons over a longer period. I may say that I am only touching the surface of all the difficulties and ambiguities involved in the concept of equality of output, outcome, and I do not pretend to be giving you a comprehensive survey. My purpose is very different. As I said at the outset, religious beliefs have the characteristic that they tend to be unexamined. And that is the case with this concept of equality. We have many, many people preaching the religion of equality. They haven't even thought, they haven't begun to examine what do they mean by the equality of output? What would they regard as an equal income? How would they take account of all of these different items I'm talking about? I want to turn from that to the next question, the question about the relation between equality in this sense of equality of outcome and other values that we hold. Because while people might say, gee, I'd like to see 
a more equal distribution of incomes. We might find that lovely. We might find it pleasing. All of us will also say, but after all, we have other values. We would also like to see people have high incomes. We want not only equality, but we want an adequate level of income. And so we have to ask, how does equality relate to efficiency? We also want to have not only equality, but also justice. How does equality relate to justice? We also want to have not only equality, but human freedom. How are those related? And I want to turn now to the question of these relationships. The title that was suggested had the words free enterprise in the title. I haven't referred to that yet, but it comes into the picture at this point. If we discuss the relationship between equality and efficiency. Because the free market, a system of voluntary cooperation among people through the market, achieves efficiency in the utilization of resources only if the people who operate in that market are paid receive a reward in accordance with their contribution to the total output. This is not the place for a full discussion of the concept of a market and of how it operates. But the key principle is very clear. The role of a market and of the price system is first of all to transmit information so that everybody involved in this market can know what services are valued and relatively how they are valued. That's the function, one function of prices. If the price of something rises, the price of blue jeans, that transmits information that people prefer blue jeans to other things. And that's the first role of the price system is to transmit information. But you have, uh, it's not enough to transmit information. You have to be able to act in accordance with the information. And the second role of the price system is to provide an incentive to producers to act in accordance with the information. It's to enable the people, Levi Strauss, who produces the blue jeans, to say, oh, we've got to produce some more blue jeans. We better buy some more uh, uh, material, and we better hire some more labor, and we better, better get more machines. And from that point of view, the role of the price system is to have them figure out the cheapest way to produce those extra blue jeans. And they do that by seeing what the price of the material and the manpower is and adding it up. But in the third place, what incentive is there for people to act on the basis of this information? The fact that they are being rewarded in accordance with what they produce. Here is the information, the signal has gone out that the society would like to have some more blue jeans. And here's a man whose greatest skill, he's a very skilled in making blue jeans, but he's now perfectly happy doing something else. Why should he move? Well, the price system leads him to move 
if he is rewarded, if he gets an income in accordance with the value of what he produces. In that case, he can get a higher income by going and producing blue jeans than he can get by wherever he is now. So a free market will produce efficiency only insofar as those who cooperate in the free market are paid in accordance with the value of what they add in the market according to their product. Payment in accordance with product is a principle that is a, is a principle that is absolutely essential to achieve efficiency in a free market. Now, equality and this principle of efficiency does not bear a one-way relationship. There are some measures which will promote both equality and efficiency. The concept of equality in the sense of a career open to the talents, in the sense that there shall be no obstacles, no arbitrary obstacles. The removal of such obstacles will promote both efficiency and equality. If I have had the rule that only people who are born from certain classes in society shall be able to hold certain classes of jobs, and that's an arbitrary obstacle, the removal of that obstacle will promote both equality by giving greater opportunity to a wider class of people and efficiency by enabling people to use their resources more efficiently and more effectively than they otherwise could. But those government measures that reduce the relationship between reward and output interfere with efficiency. They destroy the incentive for people to use resources most effectively. If for every extra dollar you produce, 50 or 60 cents of it is going to Washington or to the state capital or the city hall, well, then you don't quite have the same incentive to undertake the efforts involved to earn that. So the relation between, relationship between equality and efficiency is a complex one. Those measures that widen equality of opportunity will promote efficiency. Those that introduce a difference between product and reward will reduce efficiency. The same thing is true about the relationship between equality and justice. Justice is in the eye of the beholder. There is no absolute standard of justice. There is no way to define justice. One man's notion of justice is not the same as another man's no notion of justice. My great teacher, Frank Knight, used to say, he died years ago, but he was a great man, and many of us are much in his debt, and he used to say, you know what's going to destroy this world? It's going to be the search for justice. Now that seems like a paradox, but it is not a paradox at all. Because if justice were self-evident and identical to everybody, there would be no problem. But the point is that if I am going to put justice above everything, then the only way that can work out is through a war among alternative meanings of justice. It's almost impossible to agree about justice, but you can come closer to agreeing about what is clear injustice. And here it's easier to agree about how to avoid clear injustice. 
And here, equality of treatment, equality of outcome, is sometimes required in order to avoid injustice. It is unjust for two people who are essentially in the same position to be treated differently. Equals should be treated equally. And that kind of injustice can only be avoided by equality. However, equality may also conflict. It is unjust, it is unjust if a thief and his victim are treated equally. Unequal treatment is needed for justice. It is unjust for a lazy man and a hard worker to be rewarded equally. Justice there requires difference. But the most important conflict, and the one I really want to stress, because I believe it is a fundamental one, is the conflict between equality and liberty, or the possible conflict. Here again, as I say, equality in the sense of no arbitrary obstacles. Equality in the sense of equality before the law, in Thomas Jefferson's sense, is a precondition for freedom and liberty. But imposed equality of outcome clearly conflicts with liberty. You can bring that out in the clear, most clearly by taking the extreme case. Suppose everybody was going to end up having the same amount of goods and services regardless of what happened. Everybody was going to have the same amount of food, the same amount of clothing, the same amount of housing. How would it be decided who would do what work? How do you, under those circumstances, allocate jobs? Who sweeps the streets? Who directs the traffic? Who teaches the classes? Who flies the airplanes? If everybody's going to end up being exactly equal, you're not going to have very many volunteers for sweeping streets. And I suspect there might be one or two other jobs for which you would not have many volunteers. It is obvious that if everybody is going to end up equally, then only coercion and force, order, command, could assign people to jobs. But then what happens to the equality you started with? Is the man who gives orders equal to the man who takes the orders? Are you not in that wonderful position that George Orwell described so well in Animal Farm? in which everybody is equal, but some are more equal than others? Perfect equality is a myth. And if you could conceive of it any way, it would be utterly inconsistent with liberty. But we don't have to go to that extreme case. There's a wonderful book by Bob Nozick which deals with the case of equality and anarchy. And he gives a simple example to illustrate this point that I think is very effective. He says, let's suppose hypothetically we started out with a situation in which everybody was absolutely equal in terms of income. Everybody had the same number of dollars of income and for a moment we begged the question of who does what. And he says, but you know, and this is a good auditorium in which to mention this. There's one great basketball player, let's say, to go back a little ways, Wilt Chamberlain. 
And lots of people would love to see him play basketball. And they all get together and they decide they'll chip in a quarter apiece to make up a purse in order to persuade him to play basketball. He's perfectly willing to play basketball if he gets that amount of money, but if he doesn't get paid at all, why should he bother? Now, if you're going to maintain an equal society, you've got to prevent people from doing that. That's a violation of equality, because after the game is played, it's like after the poker game or after the lottery, people will no longer be equal. Again, from another point of view, you see that equality and liberty really conflict very sharply. But you cannot achieve complete equality without utterly destroying liberty, without destroying freedom. That inequality of outcome, a final product, is in many cases the other side of freedom. Now once you put it this way, it becomes absolutely clear that you know people don't really want equality of outcome. That's a bunch of nonsense. People may talk as if they want equality of outcome, as if they are egalitarians, but nobody believes it. Is there anybody who really says that you ought to prohibit people completely from participating in lotteries? Well, lotteries are illegal in one form or another in many states. Mistakenly so, I believe. But there are lotteries and lotteries. I've already suggested that the young women who seek a career on the stage or in the movies are engaged in the lottery. People who go into an act, into a business which may yield them a lot of money or in which they may go broke, they're engaged in the lottery. People who buy stocks in the New York Stock Exchange are engaged in a lottery. Some people are going to win, some are going to lose. And everybody goes in with his eyes opening, open, knowing he may win or he may lose, of course. We all grossly overestimate our own chances of winning. That's natural human optimism. If it weren't for that, Reno and Las Vegas would be ghost towns. But yet, do we really want to say that we want to have a world in which it is impossible for people to undertake lotteries? If we really wanted, if the people who preached equality really wanted equality, there is nothing in the world that would prevent each one of them achieving the objective himself. If he thinks you ought to have equality in the country as a whole, the statistics are available for him to figure out the average income every man in the country has on the average, and if he has more than that, for him to take the excess and distribute it. He will be achieving equality. He will be making his own contribution to equality. If he thinks, if he believes that what you have ought to have is equality world over, well then he could keep 75 or 100 or 200 dollars a year for himself and give the rest around the world to deserving objects of charity. Indeed, the thing that impresses me most about the people who preach equality is that the new class that is the most ardent that are the most ardent preachers of equality aren't doing badly for themselves in this unequal world. And of course, 
This is one of the major problems, one of the major reasons they preach it. Because the doctrine of equality has proved a very potent means for producing good jobs. But maybe people might say, well, I believe in equality, but I don't want to be the only person to do it. I don't want to just cut down my income to equal the others. The world will still be an unequal world. Well, then he has the alternative of going and living in an egalitarian, egalitarian community. There are some small numbers of people around this world who have gone to live in communes. They ought to be perfectly free to do it, provided they don't try to make us live in a commune with them. And so if those people who preach equality really believe in it, there's nothing to prevent them from going there. I owe to Bob, the gentleman I mentioned before, Bob Nozick, another bit, a bit of really very nice empirical evidence that people don't really want equality. And that is that we have in one country in the world very equal socialistic communes which people can enter voluntarily and which are highly regarded, namely the kibbutzim in Israel. Now the kibbutzim in Israel are egalitarian communities. They are communities in which all people are jointly involved in the kibbutz in that particular community. They all share equally in the output. They all share equally in the work. They decide by joint meeting who shall do what, etc. It's the closest approach to a purely socialistic community you could possibly imagine. Moreover, unlike the situation in the United States, those communities are not looked down on. On the contrary, they are highly respected and regarded. They have great social standing. Everybody is free to join a kibbutz or to leave it. They have been viable social organizations, but at no time and certainly not today, have more than 5% or so of the people voluntarily entered in and joined into the community. So we can make the empirical inference that about 5% of the people in any society would voluntarily choose equality versus diversity and opportunity. Now, I, what are the facts? The people who preach equality if they heard what I said or listened to me say, would say, well, what you're saying is very well. But they would say to me, how can you stand up there and talk this way when you know that the problem isn't equality, the problem is inequality. The problem is that capitalist societies are wicked and inequitable societies in which the rich grind the poor under their heels. Now, the interesting thing is that the facts are precisely the other way around. The facts are that free market, capitalist, competitive capitalist societies produce less inequality than any other societies in the world. That they are by all odds the most equal societies. If you go to a country like the Soviet Union, which is very far from a free market society, although it has some free market elements, the differences between the level of living of the people at the top and at the bottom are far greater than the differences between the level of living of the people at the top and the bottom of a society like that, such as our own. 
Those differences in level of living are associated with enormous differences in power over the lives of other people. But they are, forget about those differences in power, forget about the restraints on liberty, just look in terms of the way in which they live. Read a book like Hedrick Smith's book on the Russians about the difference between the standard of life of the privileged upper classes and of the great masses. And if you don't want to do that, look at the statistics. The income of a foreman in a Russian factory is higher relative to the income of an ordinary worker than the income of a foreman in the United States in an American factory. If you look in a country like the United States and you look at these statistical distributions of income that are put out, that 10% of the people at the top get 30% of the income and 10% of the people at the bottom get 2% of the income. And you look underneath that to the basic elements that account for that inequality, you will find that most measured inequality in the United States is due, due to things like differences in age, differences in family size, differences in level of education. If you eliminate these sources of differences among people, you account for the greater part of the differences. Moreover, the more successful the capitalist society is, the better. Industrial development, mechanical improvement, all of the great wonders of the modern age have done relatively little for the people at the very top of the income scale. Modern plumbing didn't mean a thing to the really wealthy people in ancient Rome. They had running water. It was carried in the hands of servants, but it was running. It didn't do them any good to be able to turn a tap. Television, radio that has brought what some people regard as entertainment to millions of others. <laughs> the patricians in Roman society, they could hire get the best artists in their society to come into their homes for them. No, the great achievements and improvements of Western capitalism have redoubted primarily to the benefit of the ordinary man in the street. They have primarily made available to the masses the luxuries that before that were available only to the classes. In 1848, John Stuart Mill, great English economist and philosopher, in a book called The Principles of Economics, wrote, and I quote, Hitherto, he wrote, it is questionable if all the mechanical inventions yet made has lightened the day's toil of any human being. They have enabled a greater population to live the same life of drudgery and imprisonment and an increased number of manufacturers and others to make fortunes. They have increased the comforts of the middle classes, but they have not yet begun to effect those great changes in human destiny which it is in their nature and in their futurity to accomplish. Nobody could say that today. Had not lightened the day's toil of any human being. You will travel from one end to the other end of the prosperous countries like the United States, where capitalism has brought mechanical invention, and the only people you will find engaging in hard day's toil are those who are doing it for sport. 
If you want to find people really working hard, you have to go to the countries where capitalism has not yet come, to the backward countries. You have to go to places where people are still breaking the ground with a pick. They are still doing it. I go back to Thomas Jefferson, whom I started with. I once went through Monticello, his estate here of near Charlottesville, and in going through Monticello, the guide tells you how many household servants he had. I took that figure and I used it to estimate how much a person would have to spend today to be able to command the full-time services of as many people as Thomas Jefferson commanded for his consumption. I don't mean directly in having people around the house, but after all, if I buy a suit, somebody has worked to make that. That's the equivalent of so many days' services. And so I said, take the total amount of consumption divided by the average wages of a man, and that's the number of men that a man commands. Now, Thomas Jefferson was a well-to-do man, but he wasn't one of the most wealthy men of his times. He was upper middle class, lower upper class. There were many people like him. I no longer remember the exact number, but I remember that I calculated that for a person today to be able to command the services of as many people as he did, he would have to be able to spend on consumption something like $3 million a year. Now, the proportion of the American population that can do that is minuscule compared to the fraction of the people in Thomas Jefferson's day who were of his level of well-being. The fact is that there has been an enormous increase in equality in the United States, primarily as a result of free market capitalism. Of course, you will say to me, but what are you talking about? We haven't had free market capitalism. The government has been playing an increasing role in the last 50 years. All of these improvements you're talking about are attributable to the wise and beneficent intervention of the government in evening out the extremes of the income distribution. What about that? Well, I believe the situation is exactly the opposite, that government intervention has been a major source of inequality at both ends of the income scale. If I ask today, what are the major sources of poverty for the disadvantaged in this country? If you examine that question, you will find that the major sources, the major creator of poverty has been the U.S. government and local governments. If I take the class that is most noted, that we are likely to talk about, in what respect are the poor in the center ghettos of our big cities most disadvantaged? In what respect are the poor blacks worst off? There is no doubt what the answer is. The respect they are most disadvantaged is in the kind of schooling they can get. Why? Because the schools are run by the government. First of all, we give them a whammy and not letting them get decent training to have skills to work. And then we say, hmm, you don't have good skills. You aren't worth much in the marketplace. We want to make sure you are really not getting jobs. And so we will impose a minimum wage rate that will make sure that you're not worth anybody's while to hire. The minimum wage rate is the most anti-Negro law on the books of the United States, in my opinion, because it 
that it requires an employer to discriminate against anybody who has low skills. So the gover our government schools give them low skills, and our government minimum wage laws deny them a job to get on the job training. Our government laws promote and defend the restrictive practices of trade unions, which have been another source of reduced opportunity to improve their lot on the part of low-income groups. We have a welfare system in the United States, which has encouraged people to stay in the area of poverty, to become poor and to stay poor. The alleged intentions are excellent, but the actual outcome is very different from the intentions. So on the one end, governmental programs, many enacted in the name of helping the poor, have in fact been a source of poverty for the disadvantaged. At the other end, a major source of great wealth has been special government privilege. You know, we, uh, if you will pardon me for uh, touching on high and mighty subjects, there was a president of the United States who was able to retire to a, after the end of his term to a very high income level on the basis of a family fortune founded upon the possession of a number of TV licenses. Very few, there have been very few There have been very few, few, it's not an accident that some of the great fortunes in this country in the past 30 or 40 years have been made either in the radio and television field or in the field of oil. Because those are both areas in which the government has been granting special privilege. In the one case, in the form of licenses for TV and radio stations given without charge. In the other case, in the early days, in the form of percentage depletion of state pro-rationing boards, of oil import quotas, more recently in the form of entitlements, subsidies for the import of oil, and so on. If we look beyond the United States, if you go to the poorer countries of the world, to the underdeveloped countries, fortunes in those underdeveloped countries in the past decades have been primarily made through having import permits from the government, government privilege. So government intervention, in my opinion, has been a source of less equality, not of more. What's true of these specific measures may well be true of government redistribution via taxes. It may well be true of what we call, erroneously, our progressive income tax system. It's a system which has highly graduated rates, but which is full of special provisions so that people who are otherwise in the same position may pay vastly different taxes. It's a source of inequality and not of equality. In general, our government policies for redistribution via taxes bring back to mind the wonderful comment a century ago by William Graham Sumner in his essay on the forgotten man. Do you remember his comment about the society in which A and B get together to decide what C shall do for D. That's what happens here. A and B get together and decide what C, the taxpayer, 
The forgotten man in Sumner's account shall do for D, the recipient. Except, you know, somehow a little bit of that money seems to slip off on A and B on the way. <laughs> Most government measures that have been enacted in the name of equality, in fact, end up benefiting people like you and me in the middle and upper income classes. Where are the A's and B's? who try to impose on the C's burdens to help the D's. But we get our share in the way. I believe along these lines that if one goes through the discussion of egalitarianism and equality of outcome, the conclusion you come to, or that I come to, is the importance of distinguishing between two very different things. One is, for 90% of us to decide that we are willing to tax ourselves to help the unfortunate 10%, to relieve distress and assure that nobody is in misery. That's one thing. I think it's a wholly different thing for 80% of us to impose taxes on one 10% in the name of benefiting the other 10%. I think it's a wholly different thing for any majority of us to redistribute income between one group and another, not to relieve misery, not to finance necessary projects, but simply because, as many of the proponents of equality will say, they find inequality unlovely. The redistribution of income, the taking from some to give to others, in order to achieve some kind of an abstract concept of equality is comparable to cutting down the high trees in a forest to the same level as a low tree so that no tree shall stand above any other. And it seems to me wholly unjustified. I do not believe it can be regarded as just or proper or right to use policemen to take resources from some in order to give to others just because some of us may think that our values demand greater equality. My final conclusion, any society that puts equality ahead of freedom will end up with neither equality nor freedom. Any society that puts equality before freedom will end up with neither. On the other hand, a society that puts freedom first will, as a happy byproduct, end up both with greater freedom and greater equality. It will be a byproduct, but it will not be an accident. It will not be an accident because a free society releases the energies and the abilities of people to pursue their own objectives. It thus prevents some people from arbitrarily holding down other people. It thus prevents people from achieving positions of privilege and maintaining it permanently. So a society that puts freedom first will by no accident but as a happy byproduct achieve in my opinion both greater freedom and greater equality. Thank you.
Yes, sir. Professor Freedom, Professor Friedman, would you assess yeah. the future of freedom and equality uh, based on the consideration that the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission is enforcing an affirmative action program? Well, I don't believe the so-called affirmative action programs are programs in the direction of either equality or freedom. I think they are programs in the direction of more governmental intervention into our private affairs. I believe that people ought to have equal opportunities to enjoy and use their resources, including the equal opportunities to make such deals of employment contracts with one another as seem appropriate to themselves. I do not believe that it is desirable that we move in the direction of having a government bureaucrat decide whether A may hire B or not, whoever A and B are. Thank you. And in consequence, I think programs of this kind are both reducing our freedom and reducing equality. And they will redound to the disadvantage of the very groups it's intended to help. I uh, was citing this morning at, uh, over here at William and Mary when I was talking to some of the students a book that I recommend very strongly to all of you by a South African, former South African, he's now in this country, W.H. Hutt, called The Color Bar. And it points out how apartheid in South Africa got started as a result of pressure by trade unions for equal pay for equal work. Again, over and over, we have to look at the actual consequences of policies, not at the names of them. The immediate occasion that we're talking about now, to take the case that seems less tendentious, but is just as important, the equal pay for equal work is a claim for people supposedly for the feminist cause. Now, I believe that's an anti-feminist slogan. It will hurt the feminists. It will not help them. Why? I believe that every individual, man, woman, or child, should have an opportunity to get a job if he wants to and can do it. But now, if there are some people who are prejudiced, if Mr. Jones is a male chauvinist, and he would prefer to have a man rather than a woman, or Mr. Smith is a, a believer in feminine rights and would prefer to have a woman rather than a man, it doesn't matter. But take the male chauvinist pig. If you have a law that he must pay the woman and the man the same, and if he can find some way around having to hire the woman, he gets away free. He doesn't have to pay for his prejudice. On the other hand, suppose he has a prejudice, but we let people compete. Then the woman at least has a weapon of offering to work for less. And he has to pay for his prejudice. The free market by enabling people to compete openly is the most effective device that has ever been invented for making people pay for their prejudices and thus for making it costly for them to exercise it. And what you do when you impose the equal pay for equal work law is that you make the expression of prejudice costless. And as a result, you harm the people you intend to help. Now, you may think this is purely hypothetical, I assure you there have been some careful statistical studies of this kind of phenomenon which show exactly these results. Yes, sir. I guess I'm supposed to go over to here. Yes, sir. Uh, Professor Friedman, you uh, would support equality of opportunity 
is it not a possibility that one of the most effective ways to gain equality of opportunity is to eliminate some of the income disparity? That is, it's a possibility that there is uh, a, some base level of income that people need to have in order to guarantee opportunity, equal, equality of opportunity. And on this grounds, is this one of the grounds that you su would support a negative income tax uh, as perhaps an efficient way of uh, seeing that that children have an opportunity to, uh, you know, uh, aren't eliminated from uh, the equality of opportunity? Well, you've raised a number of issues, all of which are difficult ones, and so I'm going to have to try to answer them simply, and I will not go into be able to go into the full detail because they are very important issues that you have raised. I think you have to be careful uh, to start out as you start out. I do not believe it is true that a major obstacle to equality of opportunity in the kind of sense in which it has meaning, in the sense of career open to the talents, I do not believe that a major obstacle there is presented by inequality of outcome. It may be it certainly far more serious obstacles are presented by the fact of the kind of community in which people are born. Equality of opportunity is much more harmed by some people being born in India and some in the United States than by almost any other difference you can think of. So I think that there are many features that are far more important than equality of income and we want to be careful that in the process of arguing along your way we don't end up getting the worst of both worlds of less equality and less of opportunity. Now you went from there to a very different question. So far as a minimum income is concerned for life, I said at the end that I think we want to make a big difference between 90% of us taxing ourselves to help 10% at the very bottom. Eliminating misery and poverty is a very different thing, I think, than promoting redistribution of income in order to get a more equal distribution. I myself support the negative income tax. In fact, have urged it and <laughs> Uh, I think, I, I didn't invent it, but I invented the term. Uh, it's unlovely term, the negative income tax. I'll take full credit for that. Uh, I support it, but not, for, not primarily for the reason that you say, but for a very different reason. I believe that if we were starting from scratch, if we had an empty, clean slate, private charitable arrangements would be amply effective in protecting, the, in eliminating real distress and misery. They have been in many circumstances in our wealthier society, they clearly would be, but we're not starting from scratch. We have a welfare system which in my opinion is a mess and does far more harm than good. And the question is, how do you get from there to where you'd like to be? And I see a negative income tax as a device which would enable you to get from where you are to where you'd like to be, while not doing injury to those people whom we have encouraged to become wards of the state. And that's more my justification. Now we come to your final point, the problem of children. And there we do have a very real problem of how do we, what do we do about the opportunity of children? The argument for parental control of children is very different than the argument for giving adults freedom. It is that we believe that in our society, in almost any society, parents will have greater interest and greater concern about their children than any other group. 
We speak of our society as an individual society. It is not. It's a family society. The fundamental unit of our society is a family. It is the interest in the family that gives people an incentive to work, to save, to slave, to make sacrifices. It's the interest in the family that gives parents the incentive to provide their children with better opportunities than they themselves had. So that I believe that primary responsibility in the parent is essential if we're going to maintain a, a decent society. Indeed, I want to point out to you that every dogmatic proponent of equality has been in favor of destroying the family. If you look at the literature, the really dedicated egalitarians have all protested against the family. They want to get the children out of the home at an early age, put them into community nurseries, raise them all the same, and so on. Why? Because the family is the true cement of the society. It's the true unit. So, and yet, I agree. That when it comes to it, we cannot avoid having to say, in the case of parents who neglect or mistreat or do not uh, uh, provide their children with some opportunity, we must retain as a final resort on the part of the state the right to step in as surrogate parents. Now, I think that we should not defend that in terms of equality, but we should defend that much more in Thomas Jefferson terms in terms of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness of every individual. Thank you. Yes, yes Dr. sir. Dr. Freeman. I have two short questions. Uh, National Review. I hope they permit short answers. <laughs> Last week's National Review ran an article on the income tax rates in the United States in which they said that the top 50% of the taxpayers in the U.S. are paying 92 or 93% of the total taxes. I'd like you to comment on that and also has anyone ever done a study as to the volume of and the effect of counterfeiting on the uh, money supply? <laughs> the second question I can answer very quickly, no. No way you can do it. The successful counterfeiter you're never going to catch. Of course, the biggest counterfeit of all is you and me in our capacity as citizens instructing our fellows down in Washington to turn that printing press. There's a real counterfeiting. And we have done studies of that, legal counterfeiting. But illegal counterfeiting, no. On the first question, there is no doubt that our current personal income tax is highly graduated and that people with high incomes on the average contribute a lot larger fraction of total taxes than people with low incomes, no doubt. But those figures are extremely misleading because they understate the burden on upper income classes. Why? Because they deal with the money paid over to the government. But part of the cost of the tax system are the costs that people incur in order not to pay money to the taxpayers. We have thousands of high paid accountants and lawyers who would be in different professions if it were not for the fact that there are the kinds of income taxes that there are now. There is no difficulty in knowing how to cut tax rates while letting the government have more revenue and letting people pay less. My favorite scheme, which hasn't got a chance of a snowball in the nether regions of being adopted, my favorite scheme is simply to leave the income tax law just where it is 
but make the highest rate 25% instead of going up to the 70% it now goes up to. Ah, you, why, you will, don't say that, because you, you will not bring the appropriate political pressure on your congressman to pass it. Now that simple change, why would that, you ask me, how can it be lowering rates will give more revenue? The answer is very simple. At a 25% top rate, it wouldn't pay people to spend the amount of money they now pay to get around paying taxes. Why pay 50 cents on a dollar for a tax shelter if it's only going to save you 25 cents in taxes? Over and above the revenue which the government gets, there is an enormous cost to taxpayers of compliance. By substituting a top rate of 25% for the present top rate, I can guarantee you that anybody who will sit down with me for 15 minutes with the numbers will be persuaded that the government would take in more revenue. No other change in the law, and yet there isn't a chance of passing it. Why? Because if you passed it, what would the congressman have to sell? What would tax lawyers and accountants have to sell? You may think that's a joke. It isn't. It's serious, and it's a real reason you won't get it done. Thank you. Yes, uh, Professor. Uh, would it be wise for the U.S. to reduce or eliminate its national debt, or better to keep it at a fixed percentage of the gross national product, on average varying the percentage temporarily during periods the economy needs to be stimulated or dampened? Well, you've asked two different questions. First place, we have been reducing sharply the ratio of the national debt to national income. The national debt is decidedly lower today than it was 40 years ago, 30 or 40, 30 years ago. How has that been achieved? How can it be that every year we've run deficits and yet the national debt goes down as a percentage of income? Because we've been paying off the debt with funny money. We've been paying it off through inflation. And we've been inflating the income level while the funded national debt we have been uh, selling government securities and government bonds to people and making them pay for the privilege of lending to the government. I never tire of pointing out that the uh, uh, government savings bonds and government long-term bonds have been a snare and a delusion to anybody who has been foolish enough to buy them, that people buy them and get back in purchasing power less than what they originally paid for them, and to add insult to injury, have to pay taxes on the alleged interest that they receive. So that's, what, that's how we've been paying off the national debt. Now, however, that's really misleading because that's not what the national debt really is. That's a funded national debt that you're referring to. We also have an unfunded national debt. That is to say, the U.S. government, under, particularly under Social Security, but also under various other future promises, railroad retirement, civil service pensions and the like, has promised to make payments in the future to a far greater extent than the taxes which those same programs are now scheduled to yield. The unfunded debt of that kind now has a present value of something between one and a half and three or four trillion dollars. It's many times the size of the funded debt. Now, you ask the question, should we keep that at a constant fraction ratio of GNP? It doesn't, 
uh, it doesn't really make too much difference in my opinion. Uh, I believe that on the whole it would be best to have a system under which over a reasonable period of time we tended to have a balance between government expenditures and government receipts so we did not add to the national debt. Then at least we should hold it constant, not as a percentage of the GNP, but constant. That would, in my opinion, be the best, but I'm not sure it's very feasible. But then you said, except to manipulate it from time to time as a way of stimulating the economy. But that isn't a way of stimulating the economy. That, again, I can't get into that, but you are implicitly assuming something there, which is very far from being acceptable. Yes, sir. Dr. Friedman, it's my view that equality of opportunity to a large extent depends upon uh, freedom of the individual to do as he chooses within the confines of our law. And uh, within all oh, the past 50 years or so, it seems as though the government is taking a larger role in our lives, regulating more and more, or if you will, taking on more and more the characteristics of a welfare state. And what I was wondering is, as people become more dependent upon the government for benefits, they tend to lose their freedom of choice. Assuming this trend will continue, what do you see in the future to protect the individual liberties of our people? Well, the greatest protection of the individual liberties of our people, fortunately, is the extraordinary ingenuity that they are able to display in getting around these regulations and controls. <laughs> the, uh, the fact is that the number of individual citizens is very much greater still than the number of bureaucrats trying to enforce these regulations that the citizens have a stronger interest in avoiding the regulations than the bureaucrats have in enforcing them. And as long as that situation continues, we'll have a reasonable degree of freedom. Yes, sir. Dr. Friedman, uh, relative to your monetarist theory, allegedly, John Kenneth Galbraith has said that yours is the best of all economic theories. One, because it can't be proven wrong because it hasn't been tried. Can you elaborate on that, please? Well, I wish I could accept uh, John Kenneth Galbraith's encomium. Uh, I hope it's true, but if it is, it isn't for the reasons he's giving. <laughs> of course it's been tried. There's a great confusion in this area. What we are asking a question is whether certain relationships that are asserted to hold do hold. The theory does not consist of a prescription for a particular course of action. What he is referring to is the prescription which I have over and over again uh, suggested, which is that government should conduct its monetary policy so as to produce a steady rate of growth in the quantity of money. That's a prescription. But it rests on a theory which has to do with the relationship between monetary quantities, monetary aggregates, total uh, money supply, and other magnitudes. And that theory has certainly been tried over and over and over again. There's no problem of examples in which it's been tried. I'll illustrate a case which was not very far from here. In the Civil War, in the war between the states, as I guess you people here would refer to it, in the war between the states, so, uh, the, the, the South, the Confederacy, financed uh, the war primarily by printing money, and you had a very nice inflation running here, something like 4% a month, as a way of financing the uh, war. 
At one point late in the war, the northern armies overran the places where the printing presses were. And it took them about three weeks to move the printing presses to a new location. In the meantime, they couldn't print any more pieces of paper, and lo and behold, the inflation stopped. Well, now that's a pretty good trial of the theory, isn't it? And there are thousands of trials of that kind. There's an enormous amount of evidence that has been accumulated about the kind of relationships that underlie that theory. And so it simply is not valid to say that the theoretical relationships have not been tried. What is true is that the policy prescription has not been tried. Thank you. Yes, sir. Yes, Dr. Friedman, I'd like first to thank you for the opportunity to approach you. <laughs> and I'll ask this question. Although I'm largely in favor of the free enterprise system, I'm rather troubled by the broadcast industry, particularly television. It's quite good at doing what free enterprise does so well. It uh, pleases the masses. But it would seem to do so at the expense of creating a lot of, I think, generally undesirable social connotations. Here it seems the free enterprise system breaks down. Uh, what's your reaction? Not at all. What breaks down is that the free enterprise system is not allowed to operate in television. I agree with the criticisms you make of television and radio, but we have to ask why. And the answer is because we do not have a free enterprise television and radio system. We have a government-controlled radio and television system. You cannot broadcast over the airwaves unless you get a license from the Federal Communications Commission. You cannot keep that license unless you accept the rules and regulations which the Federal Communication Commission lays down on you. The Federal Communications Commission has decreed that advertisers shall get special privilege over TV and radio. And in effect, they have subsidized in this way, in large mass, the advertising industry. I am in favor of a free enterprise radio and television system. What do I mean by that? I believe that the federal community, that the U.S. government should hold an auction. It should auction off the rights to television and radio channels, converted into private property. Here is a certificate, and just as you have a deed entitling you to a certain piece of land, so you would have a certificate entitling you to ownership over the right to broadcast at such and such a frequency, such and such a power between such and such hours from such and such place. Now, once you had that, it would be private property. You could recombine it with other people. You could buy some other people's rights to get a broader channel. You could switch yours for somebody else, just as you can recombine land. Moreover, once you did that and auctioned them off and sold them off, you could then abolish the FCC. <laughs> and you could then have a radio and a TV system that would be just as free and just as open as the print media are now. The reason you have the problems you mention in radio and TV is because the Federal Communications Commission has prevented for decades the development of systems of pay TV, of arrangements for providing television and radio programs under a means whereby the listener or the viewer paid directly for what he saw or heard, and therefore in which the customer had something to say. Today, any viewer who does not uh, who is not influenced by advertising has nothing to say about the kind of programs he sees. If you want to see what's really, if you want to see the difference between a true free enterprise system and a fake system which is controlled by the government, let your imagination run to what would happen to the print media if you use the same principles there that you use on radio and TV. 
Suppose you were to pass a law saying that no printed matter can be distributed except free of charge, that you cannot charge anybody for print media. Now today you have print media, some of which is distributed free of charge, neighborhood advertising newspapers and the like, uh, propaganda pamphlets, party platforms. You also have print media in which there's a lot of advertising and maybe what you pay for it is half of what it costs to produce. You also have print media in which you pay the whole cost, books and the like. So if everything had to be distributed away free, it would all have to be financed by advertising and you would have the same kind of wasteland in print media that you now have in television and radio. Because the only kind of thing that would pay people to distribute with, with uh, 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 advertising would be things which had a mass market and which were very cheap. So the problem in radio and television is not that free enterprise isn't producing what we would expect of it, it is that we don't permit free enterprise to operate. Now that monopoly, that situation is going to be broken. It's going to be broken in my opinion by the entrance of the cassette recorder, uh, the, uh, the, the Betamax and the like, under which it will be possible to have libraries of video cassettes that can be rented out and sold out and that's going to enable you for the first time to make effective use of this medium. Okay, it's all right, you. just say it over. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. I find the idea that paying a group lower wages is a way to make an employer pay for his prejudices unclear. His implied payment is a degree of discomfort which it would seem becomes manageable in view of the higher profits afforded. Could you oh, clarify? Of course, I'll be glad to. He doesn't get any higher profits. He's get, he gets driven out of business if he insists on behaving the way you're talking about. Because there'll be some other fellow there who will be willing to take advantage of those people who are available. And that other fellow will be able to undercut the first fellow. Most employers who discriminate on irrelevant grounds are not expressing their own tastes. They're transmitting the tastes of their customers. An employer who deliberately chooses less productive people or more expensive people in place of less productive because he has tastes in that way is going to be at a competitive disadvantage in the market. His costs will be higher than the other fellow's costs. And as a result, he will tend to be driven out of business. I don't mean to imply he would employ less competent workers. The workers might be equally as competent. They're women or blacks or any other group that works for lower wages. But if they work for lower wages and he refuses to hire them, I mean, go back. Let's see what's involved. <clears throat> if they're equally competent, then other people will have an incentive to hire them away and pay them higher wages, won't they? Unless everybody shares the prejudice, if there is anybody who is unprejudiced, they can hire them away and do a better job. But suppose for a moment that they're not equally competent. Suppose they really aren't as productive. Then whom are you benefiting by forcing him to pay them the same wages? You're hurting them, you're hurting him. He's going to be out of business, they're going to be out of jobs. Now, how do we know which are equally competent or not? How do we decide that? You're back in the dilemma that who's going to make the judgment? In a free market, we each make our own judgment, and if we don't interfere with it, anybody who lets irrelevant considerations enter in is going to pay for it. Because he won't be hiring the most 
efficient, the most competent, the cheapest groups. Let me go back to some stories along these lines that are interesting. At a time when there was great prejudice on the part of whites to be served by blacks in retail stores, take a case like that. A storekeeper who insisted on hiring blacks would simply go out of business as customers would leave them. At that time, what happened? Businessmen tried to arrange things so as to have as few people in front as possible and as many people behind the back as possible, and you had them using the blacks who were disadvantaged behind because that was a cheaper thing to do. They were working their hardest to eliminate the effects of prejudice. Now, if you say they've got to pay the same price to everybody, regardless of anything, there's no incentive on them to work hard to remove the effects of prejudice.